0: Uh, Welcome, glad you're here tonight. I got the privilege and the honor of speaking to you um, about the last I am statement. We've been in a series where we've looked at what Jesus has said he is. Um, In the book of John, in God's Word, in the Bible, people recorded what they saw Jesus do. This guy John recorded all that he saw Jesus do, and he recorded in in his recordings, he wrote these seven statements where Jesus said, here's who I am. And it makes sense because John even writes, he says, my whole purpose for writing this book, for recording any of this, that anyone would read it, is that they would read and then they would believe and know that for certain that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he's the one that records these I am statements that Jesus says. Um, And so we're going to look at the last one tonight. He has seven of them. We're looking at the seventh one tonight. Has anybody ever heard of the uh, Salvatore Mundi? The Salvatore Monday. Here's a picture of it right here. The Salvatore Mundi. I'm going to tell you something pretty interesting about this. This is a painting um, of Jesus. It was undiscovered until an estate sale in 2005 where it sold for $1,500. Excuse me. I got that wrong. I wrote it down. It sold for $1,100 and $1,175 to be exact in 2005. This painting was cleaned. By these art curators, and then resold in 2013 for 80 million dollars. It was bought in a state sale for 1,100 dollars. Cleaned, sold for 80 million dollars. Sold again a couple years later to a Russian businessman for 127 million dollars. And in 2017, sold again for $450 million to a Saudi uh, cultural minister. Craziest part is that this painting increased $449 million in about 12 years. For one reason, it was because it was determined to have been the the most recent discovered painting of Leonardo da Vinci. That before he, like before this was discovered or whatever, it was worthless. Before they realized who painted this painting... It was $1,100, and I'm imagining they sold it for $1,100 as a dirty painting because they thought that's how much the frame cost or what the framing was worth. But when they found out who made it, they sold it, and, and it's the most expensive painting ever sold. But its value stemmed not from the quality of the painting but rather who is behind the masterpiece. Because to be honest, when I look at this painting, I say to myself, you would have to pay me to put that in my house. Like, I don't want that guy staring at me. It honestly looks like a lady with a beard if I'm going to be 100%. But the value of the product was determined by who produced it. And the reason we're looking at these I am statements is because the value of what Jesus says in any other part of the Bible or what Jesus does is only as valuable as who you determine and understand Jesus to be. That this is the way value works. That you've got a a Nike check on your shirt and therefore it makes your shirt like twice as expensive as getting a very similar shirt from Walmart. That maybe you have a comfort colors tag on the back, and you're like, no, but it's more comfortable. Yeah, but is it really? Why well, you You've got these labels. Who makes it is what makes it valuable. And so you come to God's Word, and we sit down, and we read about what Jesus does, but but it's only as valuable as who we understand Jesus to be. And tonight in John 15, Jesus says, hey, here's who I am. You need the backstory before he tells us who he is. The backstory is he was speaking to the people in Israel. And you know you know Israel, you look at a map, you could say, okay, there's where Israel is. What you need to understand about Israel is up until this point, Israel has been painted as this vine that would bear fruit, but the fruit it it would bear was always bad and so you could even go to uh psalms 80 if you want to kind of research the psalms 80 you don't have to go there now but but if you went there like in your time with the lord this week you read psalms 80 what what it reads is like these people are like hey you planted this vine like would you restore us You've like you 've abandoned us like things have gone wrong, we 've rebelled against you, God, you 've crushed us because of our rebellion. God would you restore us we 've only had bad fruit, but God would you help us to bear? Good fruit. And up until this point, Israel has only been seen anytime anyone wrote about them, anytime God put his words in someone else's mind to write it out, to speak it out. It was always, you're a fruit, you're a fruit bearing plant. The fruit you bear is always bad. I think some of you in here might even feel that way about your own life where you're like, man, the fruit I bear in life, what I produce out of my life seems to always be negative, seems to always affect people negative. And so then Jesus looks at these people in John 15, and this is what he says. He says, I am the true vine. You're no longer the vine anymore. I'm the true vine. And my Father is the gardener. In every branch, and you would look at people, look at you and me, and he would say, In every branch, in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, he cuts off. This is one picture of a branch that he paints. He says, there are those that are people, there are those people that are around the things of Jesus. They may come to church, they may be in the places and the proximity of people who love Jesus, they may be in people who, in, in the proximity and do the patterns of people who are at church doing the things that are pleasing to Jesus. He says, but they don't actually know me. A good picture of this would be a guy named Judas. Jesus had twelve disciples, and he was teaching them and showing them and revealing them to himself. and In eleven of the twelve, were truly connected. But there was one, though he was around the people of Jesus, he wasn't abiding in Jesus. No, he was abiding in what the world said would give him life. And so what he did, he goes to the governor and the government officials, and he says, you give me money, and I will give you Jesus. They give him money, he leads them to Jesus, they take Jesus, they put Jesus on a cross. So Judas Judas may be the most famous disciple But it was because in him, he was producing bad fruit. He was was a branch that was around and in proximity of Jesus. Never knew Jesus. He says, but then there's other branches. He says, but then every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. But he prunes every branch that produces fruit. So that it will produce more fruit, he says. There's two branches. One gets cut off. They're not truly connected to me. They're not truly a life source to me. He says. But then the other one. He says, "I, I that one gets cut. That one goes through un, uncomfortable transitions. That one goes through uncomfortable periods in life. But it's for their benefit that out the outcome of the pruning in their life, they would produce good." These are people that that as a result of their relationship with Jesus. That because of them knowing and trusting Jesus really with their life. That in turn they have lives that are characterized by the fruit that they bear. These are people that are known by their fruit and their fruit is, and the fruit is of Jesus. See, here's the thing about fruit. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if any of you plant plants. I'm, I'm a big, like, vegetable garden guy. You may not take me as a vegetable garden guy, but I am. I, I love it. And, like, I'm not really good at a lot of things, but I'm kind of good at growing things. I don't know why. And when I do grow things, it makes me feel powerful. Like, yes, I'm in control of your life. Anyway, the thing about planting like a tomato plant is I get to call it a tomato plant before it ever bears a tomato. In fact, when I go to the store and I buy either seeds or plants, they don't have fruit on them. But yet they're labeled as to what they will produce. See, see that's the thing about it, is that this tomato plant, when it comes time to bear fruit, will not bear an orange. It will not bear lemon or lime. It will not bear a potato. It will only bear a tomato. And so I can call it a tomato plant because I know what plant it is. Because the DNA in the root ball system will force it to bear fruit. If it's going to bear fruit, I know what fruit it will bear. And it'll be a tomato plant. It can't help it. It's what is in it that causes it to produce this certain kind of fruit. And what Jesus is saying is he's looking at people, and he's looking at believers and Christians and people who would say, yes, I find my life in Christ. He says, then you should understand that as I prune you and, and, and as I, I form you, you will bear fruit. And the fruit you will bear will happen naturally because of the Holy Spirit in you. And we will call it spiritual fruit. See, the thing about a plant that, that like may have some dead leaves, like I'm growing some cabbage for the first time this year. And literally this morning or not this morning, today, I walk out there and there's a couple brown leaves. There's a good spot and there's a couple brown leaves. And the thing is, if you don't cut the brown leaves, what the plant wants to do is continue to send resources to the brown leaves in order to make them not brown anymore, in order to make them healthy. Even though I know, and I look at them, like, those are dead. The plant is still using energy to try to revive a dead end. And so as the gardener, I'm going to come around and I'm going to prune those off. Because then when they're cut off, the the plant no longer is trying to send energy to a dead end. It begins to send energy to the life-giving part of the plant. And and, and if the plant could speak, it'd probably say like, yo, that wasn't the most comfortable thing, how you just kind of pinched off the leaf. But yet I know and I see as a gardener, no, this is actually going to be really good for the plant, that it will bear more fruit because of this. And so Jesus looks at believers and he says, man, there's going to be some uncomfortable parts of life where I'm going to cut off some dead ends. I'm going to maybe end some relationships. I'm going to do some things that might might change your hobbies. They might change your rhythm of life, but it's for your good. That I would produce in you good fruit. He says, man, the, the spirit in you and I would describe it this way. The spirit in you produces fruit. Produces the characteristics and the desires and the passions and the purposes that identify itself as being fruit caused by the spirit of God working in you. So I'm going to break that down for a second. That the Holy Spirit in you produces characteristics meaning as, as the gardener, as, as our Father in heaven gardens and prunes your life, he says, man, I'm pruning, I'm, I'm giving you characteristics that you resemble the Father, that you begin to look and act more like who Jesus is, that in the way you treat people, you begin to be kind to them like Jesus, in the way that you love Jesus, the unlovable, in the way that, that you care for those around you. says, man, it's more like Jesus. And, and then he's also, I'm going to change your desires, that the things you actually like to do, the places you actually find joy in, would be the things that Jesus would find joy in doing. And I think of a student, I had a former student, he came and he hung out with me for a little bit, and he doesn't know Jesus and I was asking about his relationship with Jesus. This is a person who, who I actually baptized at one point, who, who claimed to know and want to follow Jesus, who, who doesn't. That's so what he said to me. He says, man, I don't, I don't know if I would want to do that. He says, because that life just looks boring. Man, I get to go on all these wild, like, escapades in college. I get to go do all this stuff. And and he doesn't even see, like, the ripple effect of his actions of, like, how that's causing people hurt and how that's hurting him. But here's the deal his desires have not been formed by Jesus. He's still blind to that. That it should produce in us characteristics and desires and then passions. That your life goal. Your life purpose should be that of what Jesus wants. But Jesus changes that so that it would align with that. He says, that is the fruit that works in you. Galatians 5 would say, this fruit, here's what it looks like. It's love, and it's joy, and it's peace and its patience, and its kindness, and its goodness, and its gentleness, and its self-control. He says, that's the fruit of the Spirit in you, that those who are connected to the vine, he says that I'm pruning, that you would bear good fruit. He says, the fruit I would desire for you to bear, that the Holy Spirit, like a tomato plant, will automatically bear out of you, will be of love, and of joy, and of kindness, and of faithfulness, and of gentleness, and of self-control. He says, but it comes through pruning. And in verse 3, he says, and here's how you are pruned. And so he's looking at his disciples, and he says, hey, there's, there's a gardener. He's, his father's in heaven. And, and my fa- it's your father in heaven. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You will be pruned. He says, but you, verse 3, are already clean because of the words I've spoken to you. He says, though my word is what prunes your soul. He says, it's my word that John didn't record. And said, well, let me record his words that you would be pruned by them and know them. He says, my word is what does the pruning work of God in you. Hebrews 4:12 would describe God's word which is another letter written by Paul who who described God's word as saying hey it's like a double edged sword that when you read it and when you intake it and the holy spirit does a work in you it says it cuts deeper than bone and marrow it says it separates and it reveals and it, and, it, and it and it shows you with clarity and who you are and who God is who he's calling you to be. That when trials come and you begin to react wrongly to that, God's word brings conviction. and says, no, 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 not, not like that. Not, that. That's not how Jesus responds. That's not how you respond. As a child of God. God's word, when, when, when hard things happen and there's hardships, the word cuts through that. And it brings encouragement. It says, "Mother, no, don't lose hope. Your life is not here. This is not eternity. This is not forever. This hasn't brought your father off of his throne. That God's still in control and he still sees you and he still loves you and he still knows. That God's word brings that. It prunes you. You don't have to react to tragedy the way everyone else reacts. You don't have to respond to hardship and fending for yourself because you have a father who fights your battles. God's word prunes you. That in temptation, it brings strength. You don't have to make those choices that you know aren't right to prove yourself as, as, as valuable because you know your value. That in temptation, it it says, hey, the Holy Spirit within you man, is, is providing you and showing you a way out. You don't have to give in to that. But there's a different way. And when you give in to temptation, the Word of God reminds us that, that the throne of grace is a throne of grace. You can walk to the Father and find healing. That it prunes and it works and it begins to, to mold and shape. And he goes on and he first says in verse four, he says, so therefore remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, then neither can you unless you remain in me. He makes it clear here. He says, here's how you can be uh, effective and productive in your life. He says, remain in me. Don't run far from me. Stay near to me. He goes on, he says, I am the vine, in verse 5, and you are the branches. And the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. He says, because here's why. You can do nothing without me. He says our effectiveness in this life to live for Christ well, to be someone who actually is life-giving to the people around us, our effectiveness is dependent on our regular interaction with Jesus. He says you have to remain in me. That our effectiveness is dependent on our interaction with Jesus. That if the branch is connected, then fruit is inevitable. And it has to happen. He says, but here on the other side, verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them up and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. He says, if you do not know me, if you are the Judas, maybe you don't go sell me out actively. But maybe you've just been around the things of Jesus, but never abided in Jesus. He says, there comes a time in life, probably at your death. He says, where, where you stand before the Father. And he says, I don't know you. You've never abided in me. This isn't a loss of salvation. This is someone who never knew Jesus. The one who never knew Jesus, never experiencing experienced the life-giving qualities of Jesus. They may have been around it, but they were never grafted in. He says, Man, there are those that being around a tomato plant doesn't make you a tomato plant. Like I got several plants in my garden. Being around each other doesn't make them that plant. For that plant to grow, it would have to be grafted in. He says, so don't be fooled. There are those who are abiding in Jesus who truly say, Jesus, man, my life comes from you. And there are those who say, well, I practice the things The kind of the people who follow Jesus practice. He says, those people don't know. And if you know those people in your life, then there should be a burden. He says, they are picked up like sticks and thrown into the fire. They are discarded. It's not a place of joy or of happiness. It's a place of wrath where the payment for their sin has to be paid by them. For those who know Jesus, the payment for our sin is paid by him. He says, but here's the promise, and this is verse 7, this is the end. He says, but here's the promise, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, listen, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, and prove therefore to be my disciples. He says, ask to produce much fruit. Ask to produce much fruit. Ask to be, God, make me someone who is full of love and full of joy and full of kindness. God, give me self control. Give me patience. God, give me peace. He says, man, ask these things. God, give me the words to share the gospel with my friend. God, use me to be life giving and and salvation bringing to my school. God, Give me the words to encourage my parents as they're going through a hard time. God, use me in my neighborhood and my friends. He says, ask to produce much fruit and you receive it. That's not my words. That's Jesus' words. the One who never fails and who never lies. He says, and as a result, the spiritual fruit caused by Christ in you and in me really benefits everyone and really gives glory to God. That people really are benefited by your life and the product of your life. Like, how cool would that be to be able to go around and confidently say, like, yeah, people benefit because of what Jesus is doing in me. It's not about me. It's about what Jesus is doing in me. And I'm really benefiting people, and God, who is in heaven, is really getting glory. People are like, bro, this is much bigger than you. There's someone much greater than you. Someone is at work in you, and I want to know that person, and I want to experience their love. He says, man, you're giving God glory by your life, by the fruit of your life. He says, man, that is an option. And as a believer, he says, no, that's the DNA that's being written on your soul you would be someone who produces spiritual fruit. So what does it look like then for you and I to abide in Christ? What does it look like for us to actually abide? Here's what, here's what I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say. Um, to abide in Christ as Christians takes us truly filling our lives with the things that stir our affections for Jesus. So I'm gonna share a really quick story and then we're gonna to go to our community groups. When I was like six, seven, I, up until that point, I grew up around a lot of horses, loved horses, like loved to ride horses, mainly through the woods and like, like just like cowboy dream, right? I loved it. From Texas, that's where I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. My dad got a new job, we moved away, lost all the horses. But we did have a saddle and the saddle was in our garage. And so on occasion... Um, totally unashamed I would go into the garage and I would just smell that saddle you're like bro you're weird it was super weird but satisfying I would smell that saddle and here's what would happen is that I would instantly be like like time warped to a a moment of, of pure joy where that smell would come back and I would remember and all the memories would flood into my brain of that fresh leather. It smelled like fresh leather and horse. Like that's what the saddle smelled like. And it would all come back. And I would do that like once a week. I would just go out there and like, oh, I like that saddle again. Let's go smell that saddle. What it was doing was it was stirring my affection for something I loved. For you and I to abide in Christ, I would say it, it, it takes us looking at our life and finding things and finding places that stir our affection for Christ. So, so what that means is we go and we, we get around people that love Jesus, that remind us of, of how great God is. That maybe we, we read things or we listen to things. We get in places and do things that then remind us, man, God, you are so great and you are so holy and you are so patient and you are so kind that we would get around people and in places that would stir our affections. The music choices we choose to listen to is music, God, that, that would, God, you you just stir my affection? I remember your forgiveness. I remember your holiness. That, God, I would abide in you, that I would trust and lean on you, that I would depend on you, that I would spend time reading your word, God, that I would soak it and abide in you, that I I remember who I am and who you are, that we would abide in him. And so I'd ask, are you really abiding in Christ like a branch to a vine, John 15 says this, and this is 11, last verse. says, I told you these things, all that we just read. I told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus says my whole purpose, my whole purpose for you is that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be complete not that you would have more anxiety in you or more depression in you or more self-confidence issues in you or or, or more identity issues in you. He says, no, no, that my joy would be in you and therefore your joy would be complete. He says, the life in Christ should be a life that is overflowing with joy, that my joy's in you and your joy is complete. He says, so would you abide in me? We're gonna go to our community groups for like 10 minutes and we're gonna talk a little bit about this. I, want to, I just challenge you to go with that on your mind. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your promise. God, I thank you for revealing us the heart of the Father. That is about his joy being in us, God. Your joy being in us. And our joy being complete. God, thank you for letting us come to the throne of grace, for your patience and your kindness with us and your mercy towards us. God, would we bear much fruit? Would we be people of love and of joy and of patience? God, would you receive the glory in that? Would you change us and work through us? God, those in here who realize they are a branch near the vine, but they are not abiding in the vine, God, would you put a burden on their heart to know you? Jesus name. Amen. All right.